On September 1, 1969, a small band of army officers who referred to themselves as the Free Unionist Officers' Movement carried out a coup d'etat which ended the monarchy. The Free Unionist Officers' Movement was made up of about 70 army officers plus a few additional men from the Signal Corps. The coup, which was launched from Benghazi, lasted for only two hours and was entirely bloodless. At the head of this group was a 12-man Revolutionary Command Council, or RCC, which initiated a major shift in Libya's domestic and foreign policy. Initially, members of the Free Unionist Officers' Movement were anonymous, but the group later announced the promotion of Captain Muammar al-Gaddafi to the rank of Colonel and Gaddafi's appointment as the leader and commander-in-chief of the armed forces of Libya. Welcome to Agents of Strife. In this inaugural episode of the Agents of Strife podcast, which in itself is a companion show to my other podcast, Society of Strife, we'll be covering the life, achievements, and death of Muammar Gaddafi. To be honest, I was conflicted as to who would be my first agent of strife between Mohammed bin Salman, infamously known as MBS, and Muammar Gaddafi. But I settled on Gaddafi because... To many people, such as myself, Gaddafi is an enigma, a puzzle. But I will do my best to present all the pieces and make them fit. To create a bigger picture as to who Gaddafi was, how he achieved all that he did, and what eventually brought him down. If you like this episode, get on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Additionally, you can follow the show on Instagram, at Society of Strife Podcast, which is my other show, and on Twitter, at Society of Strife. Before I begin, I would like to reiterate that Agents of Strife is a companion show to Society of Strife. While Agents of Strife covers the people behind events of conflict around the world, Society of Strife covers the events themselves. So listening to one show and not the other will result in an incomplete experience, but ultimately, the choice is up to you. So, without further ado, let's get on with the story. Gaddafi, the leader of the RCC, de facto head of state, and the guy with the most aliases on the planet, was born in the central Libyan desert, 50 miles southward of Sirte, in 1943. His parents were Bedouin, and only had basic education. Now, in case you are wondering who the Bedouin are, the Bedouin are a nomadic Arab tribe who have historically inhabited the desert regions in the Middle East and Northern Africa. Although Gaddafi's parents had numerous children, Gaddafi was the only son who survived his childhood. For this reason, Gaddafi's parents believed that he would go on to achieve great things and enrolled him in school unlike most of the other male children at the time. Gaddafi's early education 
consisted mainly of traditional religious subjects and principles taught mostly by the local leader. Given this fact, I think it is safe to assume that this sowed the seeds for his later streak of Arab supremacy. Gaddafi later began elementary school in Sart, where he completed six grades in four years. After elementary school, he transferred to Seba, a small market town in South Libya, where he enrolled for his secondary education. It was while in Seba that he developed an interest in politics, mostly due to exposure to Arab newspapers and radio programs. One of his largest influences was a radio program by the name of Voice of the Arabs, a news program that was broadcast out of Cairo, Egypt. Arab newspapers and radio programs weren't his only influences, his teachers too. Most of Gaddafi's teachers were Egyptian, and they stimulated his interests in the Egyptian revolution. Under the influence of all these sources, Gaddafi developed into a radical and politically active young man whose largest interest lay in the distribution of quote-unquote subversive literature and the organization of violent political gatherings. He was so good at this that he was expelled from his secondary school. Instead of accepting his mistakes and pleading to school authorities, Gaddafi was convinced that the path to any meaningful socio-economic and political change had to be violent. The defeat of the Arabs to Israel in 1948, the Egyptian revolution of 1952, the Suez crisis of 1956, and the alliance between Egypt and Syria in 1958 reinforced his belief in Arab nationalism, and all these events convinced Gaddafi that all political change had to be violent. Having been expelled from secondary school, Gaddafi sought and gained admission to Misrata High School in Misrata, northwestern Libya, where he completed his higher education. Although Gaddafi did not join any factional group, his ideologies crystallized under the influence of the Arab Socialist Resurrection Party and the Muslim Brotherhood. With his outlook on world politics colored by Arab nationalism, he became a fervent admirer of Egyptian president at the time, Gamal Abdel Nasser, and was inspired by the Egyptian revolution so much that he decided he would enact a similar revolution in Libya. He was not only an anti-imperial Libyan citizen, but he also aspired to the implementation of Arab nationalist foreign policies and the establishment of egalitarian socialist domestic reforms in Libya. Like many Africans at the time, he was desirous of ending Western influences in his country and the continent in general. After all, he figured that were he to topple Western influences in Libya, many countries would follow his lead and do the same. After completing his education in Misrata High School, he was admitted to the University of Libya, where he planned to pursue a career in history. At the university, he met like-minded youth with whom he established the Free Unionist Officers Movement. From its inception, the movement was limited to the university and most of its activities were conducted in secret as there was a ban on political parties and politics of any kind were severely regulated under King Idris. According to most experts, the actual number of initial members remains unknown. 
However, it is understood that one of the main concerns of the movement was how to reform Libya. Within the first two years of its existence, Gaddafi appointed 12 of his most trusted allies as members of the Central Committee, whose responsibilities included the day-to-day -day administration of the movement. In many of the deliberations, members of the movement discussed the obstacles in reforming Libya and all agreed that politics, especially while the monarchy lasted, was untenable. Unlike a career in politics, a career in the army held better prospects and assurances in upward social mobility. For that reason, two years into their programs, Gaddafi and his friends left the University of Libya and enrolled in the Royal Military Academy, Benghazi, where they graduated in 1965. From that alone, you can tell that young Gaddafi was quite charismatic. Enough so that his friends were willing to follow him anywhere. In short, he was like Draco Malfoy from Harry Potter. Upon graduation, Gaddafi was commissioned as a communications officer in the Signal Corps, a position that would later allow him to plan and execute the coup which made him Libya's leader. For that reason, I am forced to wonder if his placement was coincidental. I believe that he might have talked the placement officer into placing him in that specific part of the Signal Corps. In 1966, he left Libya for the United Kingdom, where he studied the English language and later, while still in the UK, he took part in advanced military training in signal science. At the end of his training, he returned to Libya and was posted to a military facility near Benghazi from where he coordinated the coup on the 1st of September 1969. Unlike Gaddafi, not much was known about the other 12 RCC members, and I think that was on purpose. I feel like Gaddafi knew that if the other members were known, then his power would be challenged. Anyway, the new government that was formed after the coup reflected Gaddafi's mindset and ideas. These ideas were 1. Freedom for all 2. Establishment of a socialist state 3. Unity of all ethnic groups in Libya and the Arab world these were the very same factors that led to the Egyptian revolution of 1952 by Gamal Abdel Nasser. In fact, in 1970, Gaddafi said the following, quote, Tell President Nasser we made this revolution for him. He can take everything of ours and add it to the rest of the Arab world's resources to be used for the battle against Israel and for Arab unity, end quote. In this statement, he wanted to make two things clear. One, to show support for Gamal, and two, to show support for the Palestinian cause against Israel. And shortly after taking office, he left no one in doubt about his and the RCC's intentions. What he did was invite diplomats and ambassadors of France, the US, Britain, and the USSR to a series of meetings in which a range of issues was discussed. Those issues ranged from the need to dissolve U.S. and British military bases and the gradual reduction of Western influences in Libya. Of course, the British did not even bother hiding their feelings about the matter at hand. Although the U.S. was just as unhappy as the British, it supported Gaddafi's government 
in the hope that it would gain favor and secure a favorable deal, especially in maintaining a commercial and military presence in Libya. Declassified CIA records have shown that steps were taken to ensure Gaddafi's government wouldn't come to pass. But unfortunately for them, they had no idea who would be in charge. They only knew that, that a coup was coming, but they didn't know who was plotting it. Additionally, the CIA, carried away by the need to carry the favor of the new government, revealed a stream of information to the new government about a series of counter-coups being planned by other politicians and supporters of the monarchy. Not only was the U.S. actively supporting the new government, but it also refused to support any effort at removing the coup plotters and executioners by a U.S. military operation, as they had been requested to do so on multiple occasions by pro-monarchy elements in Libya. Yes, I know that this comes as a surprise to you strifers. The U.S. did indeed support Gaddafi after he overthrew King Idris. The same U.S. that actively dropped bombs on Gaddafi in 2011. So, what prompted Obama's actions in Libya? Was it politics or oil? Listen to my other show, Society of Strife, to find out. Realizing that it was balanced on the knife's edge, Gaddafi's government also pivoted to the U.S. duplicitous behavior. Diplomatic correspondences between Britain and the U.S. show that both countries were planning and developing ways on how to deal with the new government with some plans going as far as to suggest the assassination of the party leaders, especially Gaddafi. Before I continue, let me drop you another bomb. The British knew about Gaddafi all along. You see, five years before Gaddafi led the coup that toppled King Idris, the British already had a fully loaded file concerning Gaddafi. That file included Gaddafi's views and ambitions. In 1965, a British intelligence officer, Colonel Ted Lowe, noted in his reports that Gaddafi was a, quote, a murderer, a possible assassin, a revolutionary, and a major suspect, end quote. And if that's not enough, instead of sharing that information with the army or with King Idris, they, by which I mean the British, accepted Gaddafi into their military schools, gave him advanced training, and even gave him advice. The British knew exactly what he was planning, and they chose to ignore it. And you know what the craziest thing is? When the world was busy calling Gaddafi a monster back in 2011, nobody mentioned the British connection. Nobody mentioned that technically, the British created Gaddafi the dictator. And that is the importance of podcasts. Nobody can hide that stuff from us. So, after Gaddafi's coup, several attempts were made by Libyans, aided actively by the British to overthrow Gaddafi. One instance of these was after Gaddafi arrested and imprisoned most of the pro-monarchy politicians in Libya, David Starling, a British war hero and founder of the British Special Air Service, or SAS, plotted with his watchguard a company of British mercenaries. The plot involved the raiding of a prison and the release of all political prisoners held within. If that was successful, the watchguard would then withdraw, having successfully 
set a stage for the released political prisoners to overthrow Gaddafi's government. The plan never took place as Stalin was worried about a leak. He tried to create other plans twice in the coming years but was compelled to abandon them entirely after it became clear that Gaddafi was involved heavily with the French, an involvement that may have led to his overthrow and death in 2011 as we shall later see. After all that information, it is quite clear that both Britain and the US knew ahead of time of Gaddafi's coup before it took place. And either directly or indirectly played roles to either facilitate the coup or to overthrow the government once it was in power. Attempts by the British and the US to overthrow Gaddafi were made later, after it became clear that he wasn't going to cooperate with his CIA and MI6 backers. From that, we can infer a lot as to why the British and the Americans let the coup go ahead. It is evident they thought or hoped that he would prove more malleable than the guy he was overthrowing. But then, given the fact that the British already knew of his personality before he overthrew the king, it doesn't make sense that they would expect him to be more malleable than his predecessor. If you want to know why Gaddafi hated foreign governments so much, especially the ones that had bases on Libyan soil, it was because of a particular incident that occurred shortly after the coup and involved a US base in Libya known as the Huilas Air Base. So, this is what happened as recounted by Air Force General Daniel James aka Chappie who was in charge of the entire base at the time. Quote, one day, Gaddafi ran a column of half-trucks through my base, right through the housing area at full speed. I shut the barrier down at the gate and met Gaddafi a few yards outside it. He had a fancy gun and a holster and kept his hand on it. I had my 45 in my belt. I told him to move his hand away. If he had pulled that gun, he never would have cleared his holster. They never sent any more half-trucks, end quote. Keep in mind that this was a foreign military base on foreign soil and this army general was addressing the head of a country. How is someone not supposed to take it personally after such blatant disrespect? And such incidents aren't restricted to quote-unquote those times. They happen to this day as we also after the assassination of Soleimani, the Iranian military official in Iraq. Shortly after the assassination, the Iraqi parliament passed a vote demanding that the US military leave Iraq immediately. After the vote passed, the military refused to leave. Now, that incident may sound benign, but as it happens, it was the stone that triggered an avalanche. Or to put it in terms my fellow Gen Zs will understand, that incident was like that squirrel in Ice Age that destroys everything. You know, the one that that's always chasing after the acorn. After the incident at the base, Gaddafi, during a public address, asked, quote, How can a soldier remain passive and salute a king who has filled the country with foreign troops? How can you accept being stopped on the street by an American? That happened to me personally. When I wanted to enter Wheeler's base, I was turned away, end quote. Subsequently, he maintained that 
just like the bases, the lives of their occupiers had become limited in Libya. As Libyans would accept, quote, no bases, no foreigner, no imperialist, and no intruders, end quote. After this, the British evacuated its Al-Adim base in March 1970. After delaying for a while, the U.S. evacuated in June 1970. In a cable that the U.S. Embassy in Tripoli sent to Washington on June 11, 1970, it was evident that the U.S. left reluctantly. It originally refused to leave, arguing that the initial agreement was reached with the King Idris-led government to occupy Huila's base until December 24, 1970. While this wasn't going to change Gaddafi's position in the list, the U.S. suggested that the base be used jointly with the Libyans. The proposal was rejected. In 1973, Gaddafi expelled most members of Libya's Italian and Jewish communities and nationalized all foreign-owned businesses in the country, including those in the petroleum industry, most of which were owned by the UK, France, and the US. He also introduced Sharia law into the Libyan constitution and outlawed alcoholic beverages and gambling in accordance with his own strict Islamic principles and upbringing. Gaddafi also began a series of persistent, albeit unsuccessful, attempts to unify the Arab world. And of course, this also included the creation of several militias in other Arab countries and as a result, his government was linked to several abortive coup attempts in Egypt, Sudan, and Chad. Gaddafi was also adamantly opposed to negotiating with Israel. He firmly believed that Palestine was a foreign state and that Israel had no authority in its acquirement of Palestinian territory for the creation of the State of Israel. From 1974, Gaddafi was all about Islamic socialism. It combined the nationalization of many economic sectors with a brand of populist government which operated through people's congresses, labor unions, and other mass organizations. Meanwhile, abroad, Gaddafi was becoming known for his erratic and unpredictable behavior. His government financed a broad spectrum of revolutionary and terrorist groups globally. Some of these groups included the Black Panther Party and the Nation of Islam in the United States, the Bader Meinhof Gang in Germany, and the Provisional Irish Republican Army, or the IRA, in Ireland. Scores of Libyan agents assassinated Libyans living in exile who were critics of Muammar Gaddafi and his government. His government was also allegedly involved in several terrorist incidents in Europe perpetrated by Palestinians and other groups. These activities brought him into growing conflict with the U.S. government, and in April 1986, the U.S. began bombing Libya from British bases. They bombed several sites in Libya, killing or wounding several of his children and narrowly missing Gaddafi. On the 21st of December 1988, everything went to hell after Pan Am Flight 103 exploded over the Scottish town of Lockerbie. The plane was destroyed by a bomb that had been hidden on board. Shortly after the bombing, news came out that Gaddafi's government was involved. 
Following this announcement, the UN and the US hit Libya with sanctions that further isolated Gaddafi from the international community. In the late 1990s, however, things started changing after Gaddafi turned over the perpetrators of the bombing to international authorities. UN sanctions in Libya were lifted in 2003 after Libya sent a letter to the UN acknowledging its involvement in the Lockerbie bombing. US sanctions were also withdrawn shortly afterwards after Libya announced that it would cease its unconventional weapons program which included the shattering of a chemical weapons munition factory. Although some observers remained skeptical, these measures provided an opportunity for the rehabilitation of Gaddafi's image abroad and he simply couldn't pass up. In February 2009, Gaddafi was elected chairman of the African Union and later that year, he gave one of the longest speeches in UN General Assembly history which culminated in him throwing a copy of the UN Charter after stating that it was unfair to African countries, which, as much as I disagree with his methods, I have to agree with him on that. If you look at the UN's treatment of African countries, as I have mentioned in my other show, you'll see some patterns start to form. The logic follows. If the UN was created for everyone, why is it that some countries have so much more power than others? Think of George Orwell's Animal Farm. Quote, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. End quote. In early 2010, Gaddafi's attempt to remain as chairman of the African Union beyond the customary one-year term was met with resistance from several other African countries and was ultimately denied. One might say that this was the beginning of the end for him and his regime. Fast forward to the next year, 2011. In February 2011, after anti-government demonstrations forced President Zine al-Abidin Ben Ali and Hosni Mubarak from power in Tunisia and Egypt respectively, as the protests spread throughout the country, Gaddafi's regime attempted to violently suppress them, directing police and mercenary forces to fire live ammunition at protesters and ordering attacks by artillery, fighter jets and helicopter gunships against demonstration sites. Foreign government officials and international human rights groups such as Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International condemned the government's assault on the protesters. Gaddafi's violent strategy also alienated members of his own government. The Libyan Minister for Justice resigned in protest and a large number of diplomats either resigned or released statements in support of the uprising. On February the 22nd, 2011, Gaddafi delivered a rambling defiant speech on state television. In that speech, he refused to step down and referred to the demonstrators as traitors. He claimed that the opposition had been directed by Al-Qaeda and that the protesters had been under the influence of hallucinogenic drugs. He asked his supporters to fight for him. Despite all that, it was quite obvious that his grip on power was loosening. By the end of February, opposition forces had established control over large amounts of Libyan territory, encircling Tripoli, where Gaddafi remained in control. In interviews with the media on February 28th, Gaddafi insisted that he was still loved by the Libyan people and denied that his government had used violence 
to try and suppress protesters. As the opposition gained strength and numbers, international pressure for Gaddafi to step down increased. On February 26th, the UN Security Council unanimously approved a measure that included sanctions against the Gaddafi regime, imposing a travel ban and an arms embargo and freezing the Gaddafi family's assets. On February 28th, the US announced that it had frozen $30 billion in Libyan assets linked to Gaddafi. Therein lies the problem. Normally, UN Security Council sanctions and actions in Africa take months and sometimes years to go forward. And I'm not talking about so I'm not talking about small things. I'm talking about genocides and civil wars such as the Rwandan genocide and the Angola civil war. Yet somehow the UNSC was able to pass sanctions in a couple of weeks. Does anyone else see how the UN's actions in Libya didn't make sense? Based on the amount of bureaucracy at the UN, there was no way sanctions would have been prepared in a few weeks, not unless they had been prepared long before the uprising started, and my main suspect is France. You'll see my logic as the story goes on. Although international opposition to Gaddafi's actions continued to build, his forces seemed to regain the upper hand in Libya. Retaking many of the areas that had been taken by the rebels, early in what was becoming a civil war. As Gaddafi's forces advanced on Benghazi, the UNSC voted on March 17th to authorize military intervention for the protection of civilians. The ensuing air campaign, led by the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, inflicted massive damage on pro-Gaddafi forces, but did not decisively tip the balance in favor of the rebels. This led to a stalemate between the two sides. Now that I've mentioned the NATO intervention in Libya, let me explain why the French are my main suspects. The story begins shortly after Gaddafi took power. Shortly afterwards, he tried to purchase military equipment from the US. The US took his money, but instead of giving him his weapons, which are in the form of aircraft, the US kept the planes, which subsequently rotted away in Georgia. After that, Gaddafi turned to France and they happily sold him weapons. This began a rather fruitful relationship between France and Libya, even though it had its ups and downs over the years, especially with the Gaddafi government accusations of terrorist activities. I'll go into much more detail when I begin covering the Arab Spring on Society of Strife. But the basic version is this. After a freeze in the 1990s, bilateral tensions between Libya and France thawed in 2003 and 2004 with a settlement on the past terrorist attacks. In December 2007, Gaddafi visited France and was welcomed by then French President Nicolas Sarkozy. This was despite a majority of Sarkozy's government being against the visit. Obviously, due to Gaddafi's human rights record, but Sarkozy wanted Gaddafi's money. The money in question was around 10 billion euros, which is around 12 billion dollars. The money came in the form of deals, which included the purchase of 21 Airbus aircraft and a nuclear cooperation accord. Sounds good, right? Well, here's the kicker. Gaddafi later withdrew all those deals, leaving Sarkozy in the cold. Something Sarkozy was widely known for his vindictiveness. 
wasn't going to forget. And so, when the chance to take down Gaddafi came, he wasn't going to pass up the opportunity. And that leads me to the question, what does France want with Africa? If you do a quick search on Google about the location of French bases in Africa, you'd realize that they are located in the majority of West African and North African countries to, quote-unquote, help with security. And it's not just military bases. A large number of French businesses are located in Africa. And every time a politician announces a plan to expel the French, somehow they never make it to power. The French have also been involved in coups and regime changes in Africa. Look no further than Madagascar, where the French helped organize a coup that brought Andri Rajoelina to power. The guy went from mayor to president, and it shows when you look at how, since the coup in 2009, Madagascar has consistently been ranked as one of the poorest countries on earth, despite also being one of the most beautiful places on the planet. You can imagine the damage that Rudy Giuliani would inflict to the US were he to become president. When you look at the history of French involvement in Africa, you start to see why a majority of African countries prefer deals with China over those with the West. And, truth be told, no one can blame them. After the death of Gaddafi, the French and US supported warlord Khalifa Haftar as he tried to overthrow the current UN-recognized government. This is a man who believed that the fastest way to win the war was by bombing schools, hospitals, and residential areas. On April 30, 2011, a NATO airstrike on one of Gaddafi's homes in Tripoli killed Gaddafi's youngest, youngest son, Saif al-Arab, and three of Gaddafi's grandchildren. Gaddafi, reportedly in the targeted house at the time of the attack, escaped without injury. Following the airstrike, NATO denied that it had adopted a strategy of trying to kill Gaddafi. By the way, when I talk about NATO, I'm referring to French planes which were piloted by Americans. In early March, the ICC had announced that it would open an investigation into possible crimes against humanity by Gaddafi and his supporters. On May 16th, the ICC called for arrest warrants to be issued against Gaddafi, along with his son Saif al-Islam and the Libyan head of intelligence Abdallah Senussi for ordering attacks against civilians during the uprising. The warrants were issued on June 27th. In August 2011, Rebel forces entered Tripoli and took control of most areas of the city. Rebel fighters achieved a symbolic victory on August 23rd when they were able to capture Gaddafi's headquarters in Tripoli. Gaddafi's whereabouts remained unknown, although he released several audio messages asking the Libyan people to resist the rebels. Unfortunately for him, now that the rebels had taken control of the country, they had time to hunt him down. Gaddafi was killed in Set on October 20th as rebel forces took control of the city. How he was killed remained a mystery. Now I say this because there are too many theories on how he was killed. But it is largely understood that a NATO airstrike on a convoy leaving Sotes District 2 led to the discovery of Gaddafi in the convoy. 
An autopsy later conducted by pathologist Othman Alzintani claimed that Gaddafi's death was the result of a gunshot wound to the head. Now, we can all agree that Gaddafi was a villain. But, as with every one of us, Gaddafi had two sides. One was the side that had established Libya as one of the most prosperous countries in Africa with the provision of education, free healthcare, and housing. But the other was the man who brutally oppressed his fellow Libyans and resorted to violence when the same people he oppressed finally rebelled. Despite all that, I think we can agree that he wasn't the only villain in this story. If he had been, then Libya would have found peace after his death. But we all know what happened after his death. Libya became even more embroiled in strife. Strife that continues to this day. Before we end, I have one question for the international community. Why isn't warlord Khalifa Haftar in jail for his human rights violations? Lock the man up! Thank you so much for listening. If you liked my telling of this story, please get on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes and give us a 5-star review. It would help the show immensely. Also, remember to follow the show on Instagram at Society of Strife Podcast and Twitter at Society of Strife. See the show description for additional information. It's been a pleasure. Until next week, goodbye.